Amen. Genesis 18, verse 1. It says, And the Lord appeared unto him, and the him is Abraham, in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your hearts. And after that, you shall pass on. For therefore are you come to your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf tender and good and gave it unto the young man. And he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf, which he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree and they did eat. And they said unto him, where is Sarah, thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. And it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of woman. So she was postmenopausal. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore, or why, did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee, according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but you did laugh. And the men rose up from thence, and then they looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on their way. And the Lord said, and so we we, um, discover the identity of one of these three visitors. Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? 
And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure, there shall lack five of the 50 righteous. Will you destroy all the city for lack of five? And he said, if I find there 40 and five, I will not destroy it. And he said unto him yet again, peradventure, there shall be 40 found there. And he said, I will not do it for 40's sake. And he said unto him, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Peradventure, there shall 30 be found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure, there shall be 20 found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for 20's sake. And he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure, 10 shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for 10's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham and Abraham returned unto his place. From Genesis all the way through until we come to the book of Revelation, God likens the Christian life or the life of faith, and we can use those terms interchangeably, synonymously. He likens it unto a path or a road, or a way. And we see God saying that throughout the Old Testament, through the Psalms and the Proverbs, and throughout the law. We see Jesus saying that in the New Testament, talking about the broad path that leads to destruction and the narrow path that leads to life. And when the Bible talks about the Christian faith uh, allegorically in that context as it being a path, it's talking about our lives and it's as if you could see your life from, you know, kind of a, a blimp perspective and you were to see the whole thing and you were to say, oh, they're on a certain road or on a certain path. And God calls his way or his life a path or a particular way. And so it's a spiritual figurative way of looking at the Christian faith uh, in, in that um, picturesque sort of a way. It's a path. Now, as with any path, whether it's physical or whether it's spiritual, every path has three elements. Number one is an origin, a place where it begins. Then number two, there's a journey. You're going. There's a time that you're passing from where you're beginning to where you're ending. And then number three, there's a destination. And you have to really have all three of those things. Otherwise, you're just kind of wandering aimlessly. And, and, and that's certainly true about the Christian life. There is an origin or a beginning to this path that we find ourselves on. That beginning is Jesus Christ himself. He said, I am the door. And if by me any man come in, he will find pasture. And so every one of us that this morning find ourselves and our life is defined by that, that we're on the path that leads to life, we all started at the cross. Jesus paid the price with his blood. He took each one of our sins off of us and he placed them on himself. He granted us forgiveness and adoption and he placed us in the family of God. And that was the beginning. And that's the, that beginning is open to any citizen of the earth because Jesus died for the whosoevers. Our destiny, where we're headed on this path, ultimately is heaven. That's where we're going. Whosoever believes in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so that's where we're going. And we know that. We understand that uh, to be the, the, the destiny that every one of us has as children of God. 
But the third part of it is the journey. And oftentimes, especially as Christians, that's the part we often forget about. We say, well, yeah, I know I'm saved. I've begun and I know where I'm going. But in the meantime, I've, you know, I got to live and I got to wait. And he didn't just take me to heaven. And so we're just waiting. I'm on the path, but I'm going. And we kind of forget that there's a journey in this whole Christian thing uh, and that there's a purpose and a reason uh, for that journey that we are taking. Now, the journey, the life that we live right now while we're waiting to, to, to end up at our destiny, that has a reason. There are things that God is doing within our lives right now, producing within us, teaching us, sowing and reaping you know, through and, and from us that are adding to us and preparing us for where we will ultimately be uh, someday yet to come. You know? and, and if we as Christians kind of think that to be unnecessary. Well, you know, I don't really need to, uh, you know, give myself to the things of God. Uh, I can marginalize that. I'll keep him as a part of my life, but I've got to raise a family. I've got to uh, cultivate a career and and work through uh, issues here. Then if we do that, then we're going to miss out on what God intends to do within our lives during the journey portion of this path that we're on within our life. Now, the Bible talks about three stages of Christian uh, journeying or, or life within in, in this world. The first is infancy, and that's when you're born again. And we know what that's like. We get saved, we're excited, the lights are on, there's truth, uh, things are happening within us, we're changing. It's exciting. There's an infancy, a zeal. Then we move into spiritual adolescence. And spiritual adolescence is just like physical adolescence. We go through a stage where we're kind of smarter than God. You know, we know more, we can direct our own path, we can call our own shots, we can move out ahead of his leading a little bit, and, you know, we're confident that, you know, we know where we're going and all the rest, and we make mistakes, and we fumble, and we stumble, and it's kind of that roller coaster season where we're up and we're down, I feel saved today, I don't feel saved the next day, you know, we kind of go through adolescence spiritually. But the third leg of the journey, which is, by God's intent, to be the longest part of our journey is what the Bible just kind of calls maturity or stability in our walk with the Lord, which is where he's ultimately seeking to take us while we're on this journey. And the portion of scripture that we read from Abraham's life this morning in Genesis 18 is from really that third leg of Abraham's journey is that he's really come into stability now in his walk with the Lord. He's gone through the infant years of uh, you know, the excitement and, and the zeal of coming out of Babylon and, and God speaking to him and leading his life. He's gone through the adolescent years of trying to help God out and really sinning and repenting and being restored and altar building and all the rest of the things that Abraham did. He's kind of through all of that. And he comes now into a season of his life where there's just like a stability where God is moving in his life, but not in a way where it used to be, where he's restoring him after some great fault or blunder uh, or giving him some revelation of a purpose down the road and in the future. He's kind of already done all of that. And, And you can almost begin to think, well, what else is there? You know, is there more to the Christian life other than, you know, having my sins forgiven and constant seasons of revival and waning hot and cold and all the rest is there more to it than that the answer is a resounding yes there absolutely is the bible calls abraham in the new testament book of romans the father of faith or the father of those who walk with god by faith and that certainly includes every single one of us 
And it tells us also in the book of Romans that the reason why his life is recorded in the detail that it is in the Old Testament book of Genesis is so that you and I would have a pattern for our own lives concerning the things that God is seeking to accomplish within us. And so we can look at Abraham's life and we can look at our life through the lens of his life and we can get an idea of what God is wanting to do with us. And what Abraham's life is testifying to us at this segment and season is that there's more to what we have in Christ and in our walk with God than the simple uh, foundation of the early years and the ups and downs of the adolescence. Every season of our life on earth or our journey as we walk this path, God has an intent or a plan for it, and he is constantly calling us to go deeper, constantly calling us to go further and to not push him to the sidelines or just pass the time of our life on this earth as quickly as we can to get to heaven without experiencing all that he has for us. And so as we look at the things that took place in this chapter, what we gain is a picture of some of the things that God is wanting to do in our lives as he draws us deeper and calls us towards himself, maybe after we've been walking with the Lord for a little bit of time. That doesn't mean if you're new in the faith here this morning that this message doesn't apply to you. This is a picture of what God is wanting to do within your life. We're told right at the beginning of the chapter that Abraham was sitting in the door of his tent in the heat of the day in the plains of Mamre, or in the place Mamre means fatness. And so there's been a little bit of a blessing that's been bestowed upon Abraham at this point within his life. And we're told that he's sitting in the door of his tent. And you want to mark that word. Maybe you even want to circle it in your Bible and notice that there. Because Abraham at this stage of things is a very wealthy man. We're told that he was increased much with silver and with gold and with livestock and with cattle. I mean, he was a man that just had an incredible abundance. We saw that he has at least 318 servants that work for him. And the company of his um, a group that's dwelling in Mamre at this time has just become so vast and so huge. But isn't it interesting that Abraham continues, even at this time, to dwell in a tent? There's two things that mark Abraham's life everywhere that he goes at every leg of his journey. One of those things is an altar, which represented his relationship with the world to come, that he knew he had to come to God by a sacrifice and not by himself. And the other thing is a tent. And the tent represents his relationship with this world. So his relationship to the next was by blood and his relationship to this world was a very light touch. He certainly could have afforded to own a home or a neighborhood or an estate or a palace. But his mindset was that nothing in this world lasts and I will give everything of my existence to that which does. The book of Hebrews tells us that he looked for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker is God. Is that he recognized in and of himself that there was nothing that this world could ever give him, nothing that money could ever buy that would truly satisfy the thing that he was searching for inside. And thus, he never allowed himself, even though he was extremely wealthy, to trust in that wealth or to use that wealth in some way to try to satisfy himself in this world because he knew it couldn't be done. So even at this stage of his life, he found himself living for and looking towards heaven. And that is something that as we grow closer to the Lord and walk with him upon this path of this life that happens to us almost automatically, we realize more and more 
that there is less and less that can satisfy in the here and now. And that the true value of anything is what it's worth on its last day, not on its first day. And the only thing that grows in value and maintains its value is that which is eternal. And the only thing that's eternal is that which is to come. And so may we, as Christians, may we constantly be growing less and less attached to this world and more and more attached to that which is to come. We're told then that he's visited in this scene on this hot day by these three men, one of whom is the Lord, and the two others we discover later on are two angels that are accompanying him on a very specific mission. And so as they come to Abraham as he's sitting, he immediately recognizes these men and he sees that there's something about them that makes them different from any other visitor that he had had or any other passers-by in those days, and he recognizes that he's in the presence of deity. And so he immediately takes upon himself the position of a servant, even though he's the lowercase lord over all of his estate. And he prepares a feast and a meal and a time of refreshing for these visitors as they're passing through. And he knows that they have a reason. Now, what's interesting here is that God is visiting Abraham and he's doing it completely out of friendship. That there's really nothing here um, that, that Abraham has to know about. God could just do the things that he's going to do without informing Abraham. But on his way towards Sodom, which is where he's going, he stops at Abraham's house to commune with him. And he really has two revelations for him. One concerns Abraham personally. And the other concerns what God's about to do uh, in the city of Sodom, where not Lot, sorry, Abraham has a nephew named Lot living there. And so God comes to him. Abraham prepares a feast. By the way, if you noticed it in verse 8, you'll see that when Abraham prepared the meal, he prepared butter and milk and meat, all in the same meal. Not kosher. But he fed it to God, and God ate it. Can't you show that to someone? You know, you guys have been doing this for 6,000 years. You know, you just read the Bible. You, you could eat milk and meat in the same meal. God did it, you know. Anyways, that's an aside. <laughs> but he comes to him, he prepares this meal, they sit down, they eat. And then God speaks to Abraham and he begins now uh, the first of the two messages that he has for him by asking him a question. He looks at Abraham and he says, Abraham, <clears throat> where is Sarah, your wife? Now that's an interesting question to me. And the reason it's interesting is because I know that God knew exactly where Sarah was. There's no one that can hide from God. David said, if I go to hell, you can find me there. If I flee to the heavens, the uttermost part of the sea, even there, you know, God knows right where Sarah is. Abraham knows where Sarah is. Why does God ask the question, where is Sarah, your wife? Two reasons. The first reason is this, is that the plan that God has for Abraham and the revelation that God is going to give to Abram concerning that plan involves Sarah to an equal measure to what it involves Abraham. What's the point? Here's the point. Listen, God has a plan for each one of our lives, but the plan that God has for our lives equally affects our spouse as much as it affects us. There's an equal share. We are equal partners in this life with our spouse. And it is important to God if he's going to advance the purpose and plans that he has for our lives, that we be on the same page, that we be unified and in harmony with our spouse concerning those things. 
before I tell you, Abraham, what I'm going to do in your life, how are things with your wife? In the New Testament book of 1 Peter, when Peter is explaining the dynamics of Christian marriage, he gives a list of instructions for wives and then for husbands concerning how to maintain spiritual unity in the marriage relationship. And what he says to the husbands in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, is he says, Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, that your prayers be not hindered. In other words, it's important to God, and he's speaking to husbands in this context, that we be in a right spiritual relationship with our wives so that our prayers are not hindered. That is, you can impede your spiritual progress or the unfolding of God's plan within your life if things between you and your wife are not where they are supposed to be. It works both ways for the wife and the, to the husband as well. It's important to God that there be unity. And so let the Spirit of God ask us the question this morning, each one of us, not just me to you, but to, to, to all of us here. Husband, where is your wife? Where is she? Not just physically. You say she's sitting right here. Look, can't you see this? No, no, no. That's not what I mean. Just like God knew where Sarah was, right? She was right behind the door. But where is she? Where is she spiritually? Where is she mentally? Where is she emotionally? How is she doing in the things of God? Wife, how is your husband? Where is he? Where is he spiritually? Where is he emotionally? Where is he mentally? Are you on the same page? Are you walking with God together? Part of the covenant that you made is that you're going to encourage each other, not just onward, but upward. And so is there a spiritual unity in your marriage and are you pursuing the things of God together? That's important to God. To not be in the right place is to impede your progress, but to be in the right place is to enable the Spirit of God to complete and continue doing the thing that he wants to do. Now, I understand and recognize that probably in an audience like this, there's many of you uh, sitting here this morning and you say, well, what about my spouse who's not saved or not with me in these things? There's a whole different set of dynamics when it comes to that. And God's working in your life, you know, person, you know, uh, that has an unsaved spouse just as powerfully. And he can unfold his plan within your life just as powerfully. But if you're here and you're saved and your spouse is saved, it's important to God that there be a spiritual unity that your prayers be not hindered. The other reason why God says, where is your wife? Very practically was just to get her attention. What do you do when you hear a conversation going on in another room and your name is mentioned? What do you do, right? You know, you're there in the room and it's like, yeah, yeah, you hear Nick, you go, what do they say? And you don't, you want to hear. And God wants to make sure that Sarah is listening for what he's about to say to Abram. And then he drops the news. He says, listen, at this time next year, your old bent over bridge playing ensure drinking wife <laughs> is going to have a son. You and her are going to conceive and have a child. And Sarah hears this word from inside the tent door and without making a single sound, because the Bible says it was within herself, she laughed. That there was a, maybe a, you know, I don't know, maybe the teeth fell out when she did that. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. But there was something inside, maybe even just a shoulder bounce, you know, 
like a, like a little thing. When she hears that, that's the response that within her. Now, here's the interesting thing is that God, who gave the message, saw the response through the closed door, and God brings it up. And he says, why did Sarah laugh? Now, that's a great question, isn't it? Why did Sarah laugh? What is the reason for that shoulder shrug or that internal twitch of humor or whatever that that was in there? I believe that Sarah laughed, first of all, because it was the um, the, the sarcastic irony of life laugh. You, you know that one, the sarcastic irony of life laugh? The one where you have waited for something and waited for something and waited for something for so long and tried and prayed and pleaded and put forth everything that you've got and it doesn't happen and then you quit, it doesn't matter anymore, it's over, and then it comes. And you go, now? <laughs> now? We have tried fertility drugs. We've tried in vitro. We've gone to every clinic imaginable under the sun. We've tried in every setting, under every environment, every way possible to try to conceive and have a son. We've been prayed for by the local prophets. We've had oil placed on us. We have done everything to try to have a child. Now we're old, and you're saying, now it's going to happen? We're going to have kids now? I can't carry the infant carrier. You know, what in the world is that? It's the sarcastic irony of life laugh. I believe it might also have been, or maybe a combination of things, it might also have been the hide the intense feeling of pain laugh. You know what it's like when someone comes up to you and they say something to you and they mean absolutely no harm at all in the process, but when they say it, it touches something so far under the surface that no one even knows is there that hurts so bad that the only way that you can respond to it is to laugh. To hide, hide the pain behind the left. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's funny. That's great. And inside you're going, ow! <laughs> you know, because you just got touched somewhere where it hurt. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs in chapter 30 that there are four things that are never satisfied. One of those things is the grave. No matter how many people die, the grave always will come and ask for more. The grave is never satisfied. Number two is the fire. As much as you feed a fire, that fire will consume everything that's given to it. It's never satisfied. It's never full. Number three is the earth that drinks in the rain. No matter how much water falls, how flooded it gets, it's only a matter of time before it's parched and dry again and it's searching and looking for more. And then number four, which is different from all of the other three, it says is the barren womb. And that's the whole reason why that proverb is written. It's not so that we would understand science about the grave and the fire and the earth. It's that in some way, those of us that will never know what it's like to feel that pain would have some understanding of what that feels like to be a woman in that condition under those circumstances. Wanting with everything in you to conceive and to bear a child and yet knowing it's completely outside of your power, there's nothing you can do to change it and it's not happening. And time goes by and goes by and goes by and goes by. And I don't know that there are many things as painful as that that a person can go through. We all know what it's like to feel something like that. But that's a very painful, painful thing. And it was something that Sarah struggled with greatly. 
In Genesis chapter 16, if you, you don't have to turn there, but you can remember that and just look it up a little bit later. When Abraham and Sarah had lived there for 10 years in the place after God had given a promise, Sarah came and Sarah very cynically said, God has restrained me from bearing. And we've been here for 10 years. And you see through that when you look at the text, the pain that she was feeling in waiting for this promise. So maybe it was a little bit of the hide my pain behind a laugh, laugh that she was doing. I think also there was a little bit of the I'm about to eat my doubt laugh in there too. Because God had made a promise, hadn't he? He had made a promise that God was going to bless the seed of Abraham through Sarah forever. Yet Sarah doubted that promise. She looked at things physical. She looked at the outward circumstances that she was facing. And because the outward circumstances declared impossibility, she couldn't see beyond that to see that with God, all things are possible. And so her, the promise of God was met in Sarah by doubt and not by faith. And she's come to the point now where she's going to eat that doubt. And so God immediately picks up on the laugh and he points it out to her and to Abraham. And he says, why did Sarah laugh? And then God says this. He says, is anything too hard for God? Sarah, in the middle of of what you're feeling and what you're going through in all of this, do you question my goodness? You said that I restrained you from bearing about 15 years ago. Do you question my goodness to you, Sarah, in the doubt that you have towards my promise? Do you question my integrity, Sarah, that what I speak forth from my mouth, that I am not able to perform that which I have spoken? Is there a flaw in my character, Sarah, that what I say I'm not able to produce? Or maybe it's my ways, Sarah. Maybe it's my ways that you don't like. The way in which I do things and the way that I work within your life. Maybe it's my ways that you question. Or maybe it's my ability that I'm not able to break natural law and let my will be done in spite of it, even though I created all of these things. I think it's important for us to recognize this morning that Sarah did doubt the goodness of God and the promise of God in this. And God knew that Sarah doubted those things and he brought it to our attention. But here's what's even more important that we understand is that God didn't love Sarah any less because that doubt was in her, nor did it stop him from performing the promise because of it. And that's true for each one of us, isn't it? I think we all go through things within our lives where we can come to times where we doubt the goodness of God or the integrity of God. Will his word come true for me? Or the ways of God. We say, I don't like his ways. I want my ways and not his ways. Or we question his ability. We say, yeah, that's the Bible, but this is real life. And God's not going to work in this situation. He helps those who help themselves. Listen, God knows and sees the doubts that we have. And sometimes he'll bring it to our attention, not to reprove us and make us feel stupid, but just for the very sake of letting us know that he sees it and that he's still for us, even though he sees that those doubts are there. And so Sarah laughs, God brings it up, and then God tells her what the real issue is. And this is always the real issue. Are you ready for it? God replies to Sarah and he says to her in verse 14, he says, I will return unto you at the appointed time. Do you see that? Circle it. Memorize it. Understand. 
at the appointed time. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1 says this. It says that to everything there is a season and there is a time for every purpose under heaven. Every single one of us that sit in this room this morning have a God-ordained purpose. God created us in Christ for a reason. There's something that he has left us on this earth for us to do. That's called purpose. But corresponding with that purpose that God has given to us, there is also a time. And both of those things are on a forward trajectory. The purpose that God has for our lives and also the timing for that purpose. And what we are in right now is suspended, most of us, in this period where we're waiting for purpose and time to intersect. And that can be an extremely frustrating place to be, can it? I have a purpose. I know what I'm made for, but it's not happening. And I can't see it happening. Understand this. There will come a time when purpose and time meet. And when that happens, there's an explosion of fruitfulness and nothing can stop it. It's not that God's not good. It's not that he's not able. It's not that his word isn't true for you. It's that the timing isn't right yet, but the time will come. Patiently endure and wait upon him. So God delivers the revelation to Abraham and Sarah that they are going to, in fact, have a son and that it will be through him, Isaac, that the promise will be fulfilled. Well, then God shifts in the second half of the chapter to the other purpose or the second revelation, if you would, uh, that God is desiring to bring to him. It says that the men arose and they turned their attention towards the city of Sodom. And Abraham was well aware of Sodom. He was well aware of what Sodom was known for, the reputation of the city. He had a nephew and his family that lived there. The stain and pollution of Sodom had touched the the entire culture and the whole region. And when Abraham sees these three men rise up and turn their attention that way, I believe that the atmosphere changed a little bit. The things became very heavy at that moment. And then God looked at the two angels that were with him. And God said these words. He said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I'm about to do? And the thing that amazes me about that is not that God would share it with Abraham, but the reason why God would share it with Abraham. Why, God, why are you going to tell Abraham about this? It doesn't concern him. He doesn't live there. Yeah, he's got a nephew there, but he doesn't have any danger in it of himself. Why would you tell him? He doesn't tell him because his nephew Lot lives there. The reason that God gives for delivering this message to Abraham is this, and notice it. He says, will he not tell his children and command those that come after him? Listen, listen, listen. The reason God gave revelation to Abraham concerning the thing that he was doing was because he knew Abraham would pass the revelation along to his children and to successive generations. Do you know that that is a real key when it comes to our relationship and our hearing from God? I can't tell you personally, one of the things that was just kind of, um, I don't don't know where it came from. I certainly don't want to take any credit for it. But from the time that that my uh, first child was born, one of the things that we started right off the bat was that every night we were, I don't want to say every night, that sounds super spiritual. It's not every night. It's, It's as often as we can. 
we get into the word of God with, with our kids. It started with Hosanna and then went right on through, um, you, you know, until today. And we just go through the Bible. We read. Um, sometimes I'll just tell the story. You know, it doesn't really, irrelevant right now, all that. But, but we've done that. And can I tell you that some of the most incredible things that God has revealed to me about himself or about his word or about life or truth have come from those times where there's no preparation, there's no studying, there's no journal. It's just, let's look at what the Bible says, explain it, and, and talk about what it means. And some of the most incredible things have come out of that time of just sharing with my children the things of God going through. There was a time about a year ago where one of my daughters asked me a question. She, she was reading through the book of Revelation on her own. And she said, Dad, why is it that God doesn't... Um, do things like reveal things the way he did for John in Revelation, why doesn't he do those things more often, like reveal things like that? It was a really good question. You know, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, that's like out of the mouth of babes, right? Like he did it for John. Why doesn't he just do that for everyone, you know? And so we sat down and I began to just share with her for about 40 minutes an answer uh, to that question. And, and my other kids were there while we were going through it. And, um, you know, we, we finished up the, that session and I was like, man, that was good. <laughs> and, and my wife comes around the corner. She had been in the kitchen and she goes, that was really good. And I go, I know I'm writing it down. And it actually, it actually became a message that I preached here on a Sunday morning called the lost language of humility, you know? But here's the thing is that a, a whole message that was like for me just to even like not even realize that those things were in my heart and then to be able to communicate it with her and then to share it with the church and to see it all. Where did it come from? It came from the simple answering of a child's question of, of a why. Why does God or why did God or why doesn't God? And, and how often I can tell you this, that if you will share what God is doing in your life, or what you have, and you give it to your kids or to whoever you can, God will give you more. It motivated God to reveal to Abraham what he was about to do because he said he will tell his children after him. God will speak to you. Such a cool thing. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then the sin of Sodom. God says to Abraham concerning what he's about to do, he says, the, the, the cry of, of, of what's going on in Sodom has come before me and I'm here for the purpose of going to investigate to see if it is as bad as what I have heard. Now, I know that when I say that in a, in, in a you know, message setting like this in church and I start to say Sodom and the sin of Sodom, a lot of people start moving. I see it, it's happening. They're going, oh my goodness, where in the world is this message about to go? But here's the amazing thing is that when God looked at Sodom and when God looked at the sin of Sodom, he saw it in a completely different way than you, than you and I see it or consider it or think about it when we read those words. In Ezekiel chapter 16, in verse 49, God, the Holy Spirit, speaks by the prophet Ezekiel and he tells us what he saw when he looked at Sodom. He said, the sin of thy sister Sodom is pride, fullness of bread, idleness of time, neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor. That when God looked at the city, the sin that God saw was the internal, the things that were going on under the surface, the condition of the heart of the citizens and the people that lived there. He saw pride. 
He saw an overindulgence. He saw fullness of bread. You know, he saw a lack of concern for the poor. They were self-absorbed people. And everything that took place in Sodom outwardly was the outward manifestation of what those inward conditions are. Now, that should be a great warning to us, and those things should search us this morning, shouldn't it? Especially coming off of a holiday season. Pride, fullness of bread, idleness of time, lack of concern for the poor. The same self-absorption that led Sodom to destruction is the same thing that can also lead a Christian to spiritual barrenness. We can halt our spiritual progress and maturity in the Lord by allowing those self-sins to dominate and rule our lives. May God keep us from it. What does God see when he looks at our life? Sometimes we think, well, he sees me drinking a little too much. Or God, he sees my sexual sin, or he sees my indulgence, or he sees... Sometimes what God sees is something so far under the surface of those things, and those things are simply the outgrowth of something else. May we allow God the Holy Spirit to purge out whatever it is that he wants to, that we don't find ourselves stunted in our spiritual place, or worse yet, never coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because we can't get free of our sin or bring it to its proper place at the foot of the cross. When Abraham realizes what God is about to do, it says that the two angels went along their way and that Abraham drew near to the Lord. And now it's just the two of them. It's Abraham and God. Abraham drew near unto the Lord and he began now to intercede for Sodom because of Lot. He starts with 50. He says, God, if there's 50 righteous, if there's 45, if there's 40, God, if there's 30, can I hear 20? God, can I get 10? Can I get 10, God, if there's... And he talks God down, essentially, even though God never placed a a number with finality upon it. He talks God down to 10. And he says, God, if there are 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom, will you spare the place? And God says, I will spare the place if there's 10. And so you do the math and you figure it out. Okay, okay, Lot and his wife, that's two. Then you know he had at least two married sons because the angel said, go tell your sons to get out of this city and their wives. And so that's four more. So now you got two plus four is six. We're up to six. Then we know that Lot had at least two virgin daughters. Now we're up to eight. And we also know um, that he had two married daughters because uh, I forgot why. Read it. Get the tape from the first service. I remembered it then, you know, but there were 10. <laughs> he counted 10. When you figure out everybody that, 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 that is listed and mentioned here and there in the, in the text, you realize that there were 10 at least. And Abraham goes, good, I, can, I, I think I can produce 10 righteous in the city uh, that will, will spare the place. Now, what we learn, if you read Genesis 19, is that there really uh, were only three that made it out, Lot and his two virgin daughters. Um, and God did spare the place for their sake. You know, he did, he removed them before he destroyed it. And that's a whole nother uh, thing in and of itself. But the point of all of it is this, is that it tells us in verse 33, the last verse of the chapter, it says that the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham. And it says, and Abraham returned into his place. Do you see this here? is that Abraham saw his concern as bargaining, but God saw it as communing. Sometimes we think, God, when my life 
is mature and complete. And when I am spiritually where I'm supposed to be, then there will be no problems in my life at all. I'll have plenty of money. My health will be good. My family will be set and secure in the faith. Everything's just going to be the spiritual utopia and everything's going to be great. Don't hold your breath. And here's why. Because what I've found, and I think probably many of you have found this too, is that when things in our life are in a place where we would call them acceptable, our tendency is not to draw nearer to the Lord, but rather we kind of grow distant from him. Do you find that? I know that I do. That I can, I have room in the margins, so to speak. And so I can put God there and I can bring some other things into my life. And, you know, there's, there's just a, a degree of comfort and all. But when things are chaotic or when there's an issue or when there's trouble, it's in those times that I find myself drawing near. And that's when I start bargaining with God. God, if you do this, I'll do this. God, if you'll solve this problem, then I'll get right with you. I'll do what I'm supposed to do. I'll commit, God, to getting back into word and my prayer life will get stronger. God, please. And, and God's there the whole time. And, and finally, we go deal, you know, or something. We made it. We made a deal with God. And God looks at the whole thing and he says, I enjoyed hanging out with you today. That's what he wants. He wants to commune with us. It's not about getting his will done in our hearts. It's about experiencing his presence in our lives. That's what he's after. That's where the richness of life is is. And so God allows those things to happen. So what's the conclusion of this? As we look at this cross section of Abraham's life at this stage of the game, this leg of the journey for him, here's what it speaks to us this morning is that God not only has a plan for our lives in general, but God has a plan for every part of our lives, every season of our lives, every season of our spiritual walk on this path And he never, listen, never intends that we settle in or coast or say, okay, God, I've gone far and now I'm going to coast until we get to heaven. And what Abraham's life testifies to us this morning is that the journey part of this path that we're on is equally important to the origin, the beginning and the destination. And the reason for that is because of what God produces within our lives while we're walking this path. Sometimes people will um, ask the question or they'll have the debate just for the sake of conversation. And they'll say, if, let's say, um, there was no heaven and there was no eternal life and our relationship with God was strictly for the time that we're here on earth, but then once that's over, we pass away and we die. Is it, and here's the question, is it still worth it to follow God and walk in his path and in his ways, even if there is no eternal life? And I can't answer for anyone else, but I can say for me, the answer is a resounding yes. It absolutely is worth it, every bit of it. I've been walking with the Lord now for 17 years there around. I don't have an exact moment in time when I could say I would, you know. But about 17 years ago, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And as I look back over those 17 years and I see all that God has done for me, I see what I was then. I know what I was when I was 19 and I know what I am today. And I could testify before you and I could say the things that I have in my life today, and those things are not material things, believe me. But the things that I have in my life and the way that God has led my life for these years, it never would have happened had he not been in my life. 
In fact, the things that were in my life 17 years ago, if they had been maturing and continuing for the past 17 years, my life would be a total train wreck today. I know it because I've seen it. I've seen it in, in people that I grew up with. I see it in the friends that continued on the path that I was on. And that it would be a disaster. What he's done is so much greater, so much different. And I could stand before you here this morning and I could tell you that there is not one person, not one, on this whole planet, whether it be their money or their fame or their talents or their abilities or their opportunities or their location or their experiences, there's not one person on this planet that I would trade places with. And it's not because I have those things that they have. It's because I wouldn't trade what I do have in having a relationship with God for anything else in the world, no matter what it is. To have his Holy Spirit and to have his leading hand at work within my life, to have his truth and the revelation of his truth, something so concrete that you can stand upon and know beyond any shadow of a doubt that it's real, to have his hope and what he's bringing towards the future, even though I don't know what it is or how it's going to work out, and to see his hand constantly with me and to know that he's with me and have access to him by prayer anytime, all the time, and to sense his presence and the peace that comes with that and the forgiveness of my sins, I wouldn't trade that for anything. You could wrap up the whole entire world in a package and say, here, and I would say, keep it. And what God the Holy Spirit would say to you and I this morning on the cusp of a brand new year a year wherein the world looks different than it has in any other year, a world where our lives look different than they have at any other time, where we sit, each one of us right now, the Holy Spirit of God would speak to each one of us and he would say, I have more. I am more. There's more of me that you can have and there's more that I want to do and more that I want to give you. But are you coasting? Are you this morning stagnant in your spiritual life? Have you built a house somewhere along this path and you said, all right, this is a great spot. I've come this far. I like it here. I like the scenery. I like where things are. And I'm content to dwell here until you take me to glory. Can I tell you this? You're missing out. Because what he has gets greater and greater and greater. And who he is and his presence and his reality and his life. I'm not talking about anything material. I'm talking about him. There's more. Will you lay hold of it? Will you allow God the Holy Spirit to shine his light on those areas of your heart this morning? Maybe even put his finger on the place where it hurts the most and say, Lord God, would you begin to do in my life again what I've resisted you in so long ago? And would you finish that which you've begun and what you started? And would you see to it, Lord, that if I'm here for another 20 years or another 30 years or another 40 years, that not one minute of that time is wasted or fruitless and has nothing to show for it. And I pray God would give us the wisdom and the ability to see our lives maybe from a bird's eye view this morning. And he'd give us the clarity and the wisdom and the softness of heart to be able to bring it to him and say, God, light a fire again. God, restore and revive and do something in me. Make it real. Make it, make it worth it, Lord, that I might live completely for you. He is not restricted by anything. You don't have to have money. You don't have to have intelligence. 
You don't have to come from a certain walk of life. You don't have to have anything. Your color, your race, nothing restricts him from doing in your life way beyond what you could ask, think, or imagine. Father, we thank you this morning, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the the testimony of Abraham's life, the father of our faith. We're thankful this morning for the path that you've called us into. We're thankful for the grace that we've received through your son, Jesus, that we live this morning because of him. And that our life is bound up in you. And we're thankful, Lord, that you see us on every day, every moment, every condition, that you know the number of hairs upon our head and not one of them falls to the ground without you knowing it. And Father, you see things about us that we can't even see about ourselves. Lord, you see the condition of our spiritual life. You see the condition of our marriages, of our parenting and of our families. You see the condition of our soul. You see the spiritual things that have been so overgrown with thorns and hedges and briars and weeds. You've seen where we've put down so long ago what you would have us to take up again. And we make it our prayer this morning that, Holy Spirit, you would empower again those things in our life that have grown weary and cold. That where our hearts have become hard, Lord, you would bring softness again. And that, God, our lives would count for you and for eternity. So, Lord, please, this morning we would ask, hear our prayer. Lord, that you would revive, that you would bless, that you would pour out. And I know, Lord, that there's many hearts here, many people this morning, Lord, whose hearts are extended towards heaven right now. And that this prayer is resounding with them. Lord, I pray you'd hear the individual prayers of each one of those people. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has yet to come onto that path, I would pray that this morning, Lord, the seed of your word that has gone into those hearts, that it would germinate and bring forth new life. Lord, your way is so right. And we are so grateful to belong to you. So would you please, even right now, let the Holy Spirit of God fall upon our lives afresh and revive us, renew us, strengthen us, give us vision and sight, and make us completely yours. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.